As we continue our series on the life of joy from Philippians chapters 1 and 2, we come now to a passage where Paul deals with our identity. What is your identity? If you had to put it in one simple tagline that you could put on social media, perhaps, or share with a friend, how would you define your own identity? What's it based in? How would you describe who you truly are? Of course, there's much talk these days about identity. We hear about identity politics. We hear about sexual identity, all sorts of backgrounds and means by which people identify or define themselves. But that's not a new thing. Although it's particularly emphasized in our day and age, this was something that has always been a question for people. How, how do I identify myself? Who am I really? What fundamentally defines me? And Paul speaks to Christians about their identity now as Christians and how they should consider themselves, first of all, and then how that consideration and that new beginning as a Christian should flow out into their action. And he appeals to the members of the church at Philippi, first and foremost, and then to all Christians by extension, that as Christians, he says, you must live like what you now are in Christ or conduct yourself in line with the gospel. The conduct or the living out of the gospel is his theme. And as he does so, what he will reiterate in multiple ways is this same idea. That is, as Christians, you must act like who you are. Act like who you are, or live out who you truly are in Christ. And he'll do that in two ways, first a general and then a specific way. The general is to say the way you live must flow from who you are in Jesus, who Jesus has remade you to be. And then he gives a very specific way in which that's done, which is the way you face opposition must also flow from who you are in Jesus. And so he's going to speak generally about all acts of life, and he's going to particularly hone in on the fact of opposition or challenges in life and how you face those in light of who you now are in Christ. So we begin in verses 27 and 28. The way you live must flow from who you are in Jesus. Once you have become a Christian, once that starting point has happened, once your being or identity has fundamentally changed because of the good news of Christ in his redemption through the cross, you must then live out or begin the process, we might say, of actively choosing to practically live out the implications of that gospel and applying it to every area of life. But how in the world do you do that? That sounds great. Live like who you are. Wonderful. All right. What's the first step, Paul? What do I do? How do I practically think about that? And Paul helps us to understand exactly how we do that by explaining three avenues or three ways that we do that. First of all, he says, exercise your citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel. Or consider yourself as a new citizen of a new place. It's what he says in another passage in Colossians chapter 3. He said, set your affection, if you're a Christian, set your affection, set your heart, set your aims and your goals on things above where Christ sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider yourself to be citizens of another place, specifically heaven, where God dwells. Look at verse 27 and how he says this in chapter 1. He says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now that's a bit of a paraphrase, the way he said that. Some translations do the more uh, specific translation, which is the idea of citizenship. 
live as citizens of a different place. It's saying the same thing, but particularly this is important for the Philippian Christians because many of them were Roman citizens. Philippi was a city that had a great many Roman citizens in it, but they weren't living in Rome. They were, many of them, retired military officers or politicians or things like that, and they had moved to this other Roman colony, and they were very familiar with the idea that we are supposed to act like Romans even though we don't live in Rome itself. This is an enclave, an offshoot of Rome, and so we represent Rome. We live by the laws of Rome. We live as Roman citizens in this different place, and that's what Paul is playing off of. He says, as Christians... We must live as citizens of a different place. But we're, we're not actually living actively in heaven at this moment. But we are to act as if we are citizens of heaven because that's where we fundamentally have our citizenship. Our passport, so to speak, is from there. That's our primary identity. And so we must take that identity and that reality into the present wherever we live and realize that's our fundamental citizenship. To say it a slightly different way, for a Christian, it doesn't matter what's on your passport or your driver's license. What fundamentally matters more than that is that you are a citizen of heaven. And he'll develop that as we go. But Paul moves to these practical elements that he's about to get to here, live as citizens of heaven and what he's about to say. He moves to these practical elements in these verses, but in Paul's writing, something must be understood about how Paul typically, in every example that we have at least, how he writes his letters, he has a particular order to them. That is, he stresses practical concerns only after considering what we should believe as Christians. Paul never begins by telling Christians in a letter, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. He never does that. Why? Because your actions, your activity, your conduct must ultimately flow from what you believe. Conduct is the outcome of certain things that have been believed. And so Paul always begins, here's Christian doctrine, here's Christian truth, here's what you must believe and why you must believe it as a Christian, and now live that out by doing these practical things. True Christian action must flow from true Christian doctrine. It's what theologians term in fancy terminology, orthodoxy must lead to orthopraxy. Orthodoxy is right belief, and it must lead to orthopraxy, which is right activity or right action. And this is always the way. If you want to know what a person truly believes, not what they say they believe, but what a person truly believes down deep inside of them, just watch their actions. A person's actions are the outflow of their fundamental beliefs. Let's take an illustration to make this point clear. If we were to go outside right now and find someone walking down the sidewalk and we run up to him or her and we say, listen, make sure that you conduct yourself according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if they're not a Christian, first of all, they'll think we're crazy. But secondly, it's going to make no impact on them. Why? They don't know who Jesus is. They've not received the gospel. There's no way for them to respond and live in light of the gospel that they have rejected or have never accepted. It would be foolish. Unless or until that person believes the gospel of Jesus, there can be no true Christian life or living that flows from that starting point. Christian conduct and behavior is only possible on the basis of Christian doctrine. You can only live out what you actually have inside. 
Furthermore, few things are as destructive for the cause of the gospel than to give the impression that Christianity is merely a list of do's and don'ts. Do this, don't do this. A list of restrictions or rules or prohibitions. This is why the New Testament authors never begin with that. They never start out saying, all right, Christians, do these five things, don't do these seven things, and then you'll be okay. Why? Well, in the Old Testament, we we have a lot of rules, we have a lot of laws, such as the Ten Commandments, and those are good and appropriate, but there is a limit to the benefit of law. The law does not reason with us. It doesn't explain to us why we should hold to something. It merely tells us, do or don't do. But what Paul does for us, what the New Testament authors do for us because of the gospel, is they say, believe and understand this, and in light of that reality, act like who you now are as a Christian. That's much more powerful. It's also much more logical and consistent with how we as humans operate than merely to say, do or don't do. Because, after all, with our sin nature, what happens as soon as someone tells you not to do something? especially when you're a child before you have perhaps some other habits built in. Don't go over there, little boy. Don't go over there, little girl. Don't touch that. Immediately you want to do that thing because we're rebellious at heart. We want to test the limits. And the truth of the matter is laws and rules will never lead to life. They, they cannot be life-giving or life-infusing, but the gospel is life-giving and life-infusing. And so it would make sense that when we consider how we should live as Christians, it's going to be fundamentally different than, frankly, most other religious organizations or religious creeds, which say, here's the list of things you can do, and here's the list of things you can't do. That doesn't lead to life. It leads to bondage, to slavery. When a person becomes an ambassador to another country, there are new actions and a new demeanor that flows from that new position. In the New Testament, we're told one of the many images of us as Christians is that we are ambassadors of Jesus. After we've been adopted into his royal family, he sends us as ambassadors. Well, that means we have to act like who we're representing, which is Jesus, the gospel. And an ambassador in a political sense here on this earth, they must act in certain ways that match the role they've been given, that match the country from which they come. Their actions, their words, their conduct all flow from their new objective position, or at least they should. And the Christian life works the same way, but on a much grander scale. Our position is now as adopted children of the living, all-powerful God. We've now been placed into his royal family, and so we must act as if that's the case. We're not trying to act like a Christian in order to become a Christian. This is one of the challenges I often find for those who are, first of all, investigating Christianity. They perhaps visit a church, they speak with a Christian friend, they start asking questions, and they're attracted to the person of Jesus and what he said and what he did. But they often come to an erroneous conclusion, and it's natural enough because most other religions operate this way. But Christianity is unique here. They often think, okay, well, I'm attracted to the outcome of Christianity, therefore I'll start acting as if I'm a Christian. I'll try to imbibe the ethical, moral framework that Jesus taught and start living that out in hopes that that will help me eventually become a Christian. But it's, it's thinking backwards. It'll never work. You can never actually act like a Christian 
until you have fundamentally become a Christian. The action must flow from the new change of heart and life inside. If you want to know what you should do or not do and how you should operate as a Christian, in one sense, once you become a Christian, it all boils down to one rule, if you want to call it a rule. It's more of a principle, actually. It's not following a list of rules, but rather the one principle to follow is simple. It's live in light of the gospel. That's it. Once you become a Christian, that's the only principle you need to apply, and it can be applied to every situation in life. Live in a worthy manner of the gospel. Live in light of the gospel. Live in light of what Christ has remade you to be now. Behave as what you now are, a citizen of heaven. Behave or conduct yourself as citizens of another country. There's nothing that so thoroughly recommends the gospel and Jesus, the person and work of Jesus, to another person than the practical demonstration of someone who's been fundamentally changed by the gospel. When you see a changed life, someone who used to do these things, but now instead of living selfishly and acting in these ways, they're living in the exact opposite way. They have power over sin in their life. They're seeing victory. The the way in which they communicate, the things they do have been fundamentally changed, and they are looking and acting a bit more like Jesus each day. When you see that, that's a glorious demonstration of gospel power. And it's very appealing to people. Because all of us know we need change. All of us know we want to be changed. We're not as good as we would like to be. We're not even close. We're not where we would like to be. We want to see that progress. And so when you see it in the life of another individual, you automatically want to know, what's the secret? For someone who wants to get healthy, go to the gym and exercise and and make sure that they have enough energy and all those things, if you want to get healthy, one of the best ways to do that is find someone else who's healthy, who knows how to go to the gym, who knows how to exercise, who knows how to eat right, and then say, hey, I see what you're doing. I see the energy levels you have. I see that you're a healthy individual. What do you do to get there? That's the way to go about that. And we could apply that to every avenue of life. And it works the same for someone who is a Christian. As one anonymous author put it, you're writing, as a Christian, you're writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. Men, read what you write, whether faithful or true. Just what is the gospel according to you? By every action and activity and word and deed and thought and intention and motivation that we have as Christians, we are communicating something. We're either giving a false impression of the gospel or a true and accurate and attractive representation of the gospel. That's what Paul is reminding his hearers about. A Christian family or a Christian church, which is just a larger spiritual family, is a little enclave of heaven. It's a small colony or an outpost in enemy-occupied territory. And Christian individual families or Christian church families are to represent the homeland and their king, Jesus, as long as they live in that occupied territory until God calls them home. The Christian responsibility is to act as citizens of another world. And that's a permanent obligation that requires perseverance. One of the early church fathers, Chris Austin, said this, Nothing is so incongruous for a Christian and foreign to his character as to seek ease and rest. 
It's a fundamental hypocritical contradiction for a Christian to sit back and say, I'm going to coast. I've done enough. Let someone else do it, or I've worked hard enough, or I'm sick of trying. I'm just going to sit back and wait till Jesus returns, or wait till I die, or whatever it is, and, and I'm going to check out mentally. That's sinful. It's completely beyond the pale of what Christ actually commanded us to do. We are to have perseverance. In fact, one of the terms that Paul uses here has the idea of tenacity, a tenacious spirit. True citizenship in heaven requires a tenacity of spirit, even in the face of opposition and suffering, as we're about to find out in verses 29 and 30. Do you have that tenacious Christian spirit? Is that how someone might characterize you and how you try to live out your Christianity? Do you have Christian tenacity? It's probably not something that we've seen a lot of books written on. You don't see a lot of podcasts on Christian tenacity. And the theological word is usually Christian perseverance. Whatever we term it, there, there's an element of work here. And Paul's going to tell us a bit more about that. Now, what difference would it make if you lived, if you actively made your choices of what you did, said, and thought based on what Paul tells us here? Live as citizens of heaven. Conduct yourself as who you are in Christ citizens of another world. What would be the active, realistic outcome? Well, there are thousands we could consider. Let me give you a few. Depression, discouragement, and pessimism are on the rise in our culture. And let's use those as an example. But all of those are out of step with someone who's a true Christian of heaven. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that a Christian over the course of his or her lifetime will never struggle with any discouragement or depression, anxiety or pessimism. That's not what I'm saying. But when they are struggling with that, and especially if it's a perennial consistent problem, then one of the things that shows is that there is something fundamentally wrong spiritually. There may also be physical things wrong, and we'll put that to the side for a moment, but there's at least some part of that that has a spiritual cause because that means they are not living in light of their citizenship in heaven because after all how could someone truly be consistently discouraged and overly pessimistic and depressed if they're a child of God when they know they've been adopted into the royal family when they know they have eternal life and their sins have been forgiven that they have a home in heaven and the power of God has been promised to them to have victory in their everyday life. Those realities, if understood, believed, and practiced, would never lead a person to be consistently discouraged, depressed, or pessimistic. You see, this has real implications for how we live our lives, not just our actions, but the ideas, the thoughts, the motivations that lead to those actions. That's just one example. But let's move on to what Paul says next. He says, consider yourself and conduct yourselves as citizens of heaven. Secondly, stand firm and contend together for the gospel. Back to verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel or as citizens of heaven. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Paul says, of course, I want to come visit you. I want to see you in person as a sort of spiritual heavenly, uh, spiritual father figure who had helped plant that church and led several of them to Christ and probably baptized several of them. 
He wants to see them again. He wants to be on hand, hands-on, so to speak, so that he can encourage them to grow in Christ. But he says, even if I'm not there, that doesn't mean you, you can't keep growing. And one of the ways you continue to grow is to stand firm together and contend or fight for the good news of the gospel. This is part of the way that you tenaciously conduct yourself as a Christian citizen. Christian citizens must unitedly defend and promote the truth of the gospel, the Christian faith. The wording here is that of an army. Now, no one can read the New Testament and and read it with understanding without coming away with the impression that the Christian church is an army. Jesus even uses that military language at several points. There is a fight and a struggle happening in the world around us. And that makes sense if we're citizens of a different country, but we're living in a colony or an outpost of that wonderful new eternal country. But we're living in occupied territory right now, trying to represent as ambassadors the person and work of Jesus Christ. It makes sense that there is going to be resistance, that we're going to have to fight, that there's going to be a struggle. And God wants his children to fight together for truth, against falsehood, for truth, and for Christian unity for the sake of the gospel. Unity is essential. For the gospel to go out, for perseverance to be had, unity is essential. Are you fighting for Christian unity? Are you fighting and tenaciously holding to the faith once for all delivered to the saints? That that requires that you study it so that you know what it is, that you're in God's word consistently so that you know what the faith is, You know how to defend it, how to live it out, and then that you're actively seeking to join with other Christians in a local church body and stick with them in order to hold to it. Remember, each local church is only one generation away from extinction. Christianity has never and can never be propagated by the sword or by violence. You, you can't hold some sort of weapon to a person's head and say, trust Jesus or else. It doesn't work that way. Now, it works that way in many other religions. You can force someone to convert, but you can never force a person to become a Christian because it's something that happens inside of them. You could perhaps force them to say words, but that's meaningless. It's a fundamental change that God does in his or her heart. But what that means is, if we don't defend the faith, if we don't live out the faith, if we don't inculcate and teach the faith to the next generation, we're only one generation from losing the faith in a local congregation. And all too often that has happened. Why? Because Christians have failed to do what Paul says. Conduct yourselves as Christians, because every child knows, and all parents know how children think as well. A child catches what his parents do. Now, they can say, oh, yes, I'm a Christian, and they can go to church quite often. But if they're not living out the gospel at home, that child, that son and daughter, as they grow up, they won't receive the gospel. They'll more often than not reject it. Why? Because it's hypocrisy. Their parents show it to be hypocrisy. They claim one thing and do another. But when Christian parents, in particular, live out the gospel, not just we're going to do this for an hour and a half a week when we go to church, but they're living it out at home. It changes the way mom and dad talk to each other. It changes the way they talk and discipline their children. It changes the way they think about how they're going to educate and discipline and inculcate the truth in their children. They see their mom and dad on their knees before God in prayer. They see them living it out. 
That's powerful. But without that, it's just one generation away from going away. As the saying goes, if you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. And too many Christians, especially in the Western world or the first world, stand for nothing. They have completely ignored commands such as this to stand firm in the faith, to know it, to defend it, to realize it is theirs, to hold fast to it, and to unite with other Christians, to hold on to it, and to inculcate it into the next generation, and they've just sat around waiting for Jesus to return or waiting for who knows what. And what's the outcome? They fall for anything. They fall for the latest fad. They chase after this and that. They become just like the world. And what happens in the local church? The next generation runs away. The literal definition of what Paul says here when he says contend earnestly for the faith, it's a, it's a striving together. It's also not just the picture of an army, but also of an athlete and a team of athletes as if they're uh, joining hands or joining arms in an athletic endeavor. We have to work together, he says. And from the very outset, Paul and the other New Testament apostles, Jesus himself, alerts the reader and the listener that Christian sanctification, Christian growth in our actions and living out the gospel, it cannot be reduced to an individualistic exercise. The struggle of the Christian citizen or the struggle that the Christian citizen faces has to be faced within the community that God has set up, which is the Christian local church. Yet what do we see happen? In our society around us, we've uh, perhaps experienced this. Some of you have perhaps partaken in this in the past. We see it all around us. What happens? Someone goes to a church. They're a Christian. They perhaps join that church for a time. As soon as something happens they don't like or that's a little difficult or they have an interpersonal conflict, they run away and they go to the church down the street. And then something happens there within a year that they don't really like, so they run away to another church. That mentality, first of all, that's sinful. Unless there's a, a biblical reason for you to leave a church, you shouldn't be running away from churches and church hopping. That is blatantly sinful and hypocritical of a Christian. But beyond that, what it shows is a fundamental misunderstanding of what Christianity is. It's saying, I can live my Christian life without actually getting to know other Christians, joining together with them, being vulnerable before them and they to me, without being accountable, without any consistency. It's me and God against the world. Nonsense. That's not how God set it up to be. You cannot live as an individualistic Christian. It's a blatant contradiction of terms. We need other Christians. We need that encouragement. We need that accountability. We need a brother or sister sometimes to call us up short and say, the way you just spoke with your children was sinful. You need to repent. We need their encouragement. Hey, I know you've been down recently. You're discouraged because of what's going on, but let me pray for you. Is there anything I can do for you? Remember and remind yourself that God loves you. We need that. We cannot go it alone. And so Paul's message, one of Paul's messages here, is stop trying to go it alone as a Christian. It doesn't work, practically speaking, but it was never meant to work. Are you aware of the spiritual battles being fought all around us? In your own personal life, we're often aware of some of them going on in our personal life, but maybe we're not as aware of the bigger scheme that Satan is constantly trying to attack individual Christians, yes, but families and the church family as a whole. Are you aware of what he's doing? Are you ignorant of the devil's devices, as one of the New Testament authors states? 
He says we shouldn't be ignorant because God has told us how he operates. Don't be ignorant. Realize that we are in enemy-occupied territory. He's going to attack us. He's coming after us, and we must fight. Don't get lulled into a false sense of security. We have to wake up. There are attacks from outside. There are attacks from within the church. And we must realize that the fight is going on. But not only realize it's going on, we must make it our fight. To say it slightly differently, we must realize it is our fight. Whether we want to make it our fight or not, it is our fight if we are a child of God. If you're a Christian, then you're a soldier in God's army. You're on his team. And therefore, you must strive as if that's the case. And then much more briefly, Paul goes on and he says, thirdly, don't be intimidated. If you're in an army and you're facing an enemy... If you're in an athletic team and you're facing the opposing team, it's sometimes easy to be intimidated. And so Paul, naturally enough, in verse 28 says, don't be intimidated. He says, strive together for the sake of the gospel, verse 28, without being frightened or intimidated in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved by God. What's he saying here? He's saying, stand up, stand tall, don't be intimidated because God's already won the victory. The true grounds for a Christian's encouragement was the profound conviction that no matter what happens, no matter what army, so to speak, spiritually is arrayed against you or as a, as a Christian family, as a Christian church, no matter what, God is in control. And so you can stand tall even in the face of an overwhelming, what seems to be an overwhelming enemy. Overwhelming odds. That's fine. Because God is on our side. So don't be intimidated. He goes on in verses 29 and 30 and says that part of the way that we don't be intimidated is that we face opposition in a way that flows from the gospel of Christ. Verses 29 and 30, he says, For it has been granted to you, Notice his wording here, very important. It has been granted to you, that's the idea of a gift, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul says something here that, that's quite startling. Let me paraphrase it for us, because um, it is a bit of a complex sentence, the way he, he puts it together. But here's a paraphrase of those two verses. The conflict, and by conflict he means the spiritual attacks, the struggles, the trials you face as a Christian, uh, all those sorts of negative things, be they spiritual, mental, physical, whatever they are, those conflicts that you are experiencing, he says they may appear frightening, and thus they threaten to discourage you. But you cannot allow that discouragement to happen because even though you're tempted to interpret these conflicts as a bad omen, that's not what they are. They're not a bad omen showing that God is displeased with you or that he is going to allow you to be destroyed. Rather, you must interpret what is happening as a gift and an evidence of God's design to help you, encourage you, and save you. Why? Because suffering is the way God has ordained to bring about his glory and for you to become more and more in line with who you are as one of his children. Paul's description of suffering is as a gift, now, most of us, if we have been a Christian for any length of time, we think we're doing really good if we can simply come to the, the final conclusion that suffering in this world because of sin is inevitable. And we just resign ourselves to the fact that it can't be avoided, it is inevitable, and so when it comes, I'll, I'll pray and I'll, I'll try to do what God tells me to do, but it's just sort of a, 
It's a bit of a relaxed posture. Perhaps that's not the best terminology. It's a, I give up because it's inevitable, so I'm just going to take it when it comes. But that's not what Paul says. He says, don't, don't resign yourself to it. That's not what he says. He says, rather, when it comes, positively accept it as if it's a gift straight from the hand of Almighty God. Because that's what it is. If you will allow it to work out its purpose in your life. God has a purpose for every bit of negative uh, outcome that happens in your life. Every bit of suffering, every bit of temptation, every bit of trial, every bit of issue and affliction that happens in your life, whatever that is, and all Christians will experience it, it ultimately is only allowed through the loving hand of our Heavenly Father. And so Paul says, count it as a gift. And just as he said previously in chapter 1, use it also as an opportunity to live out and to give out the gospel. For a Christian who's living under the lordship of Christ in every area of life, every affliction and every frustration seems to become an obstacle to serving Christ. But what Paul says is, no, it's not an obstacle. It's actually part and parcel of the way that you serve him. The way you serve him, the way you grow, at least partially, is by accepting even the negative stuff as a gift from him. Because nothing can come into your life unless God your heavenly father has allowed it. So even the worst situation in the life of a Christian ultimately can have a good end if you will receive it as the gift it is intended to be. But, but understand, it must be reiterated because many misunderstand this. When we think of a gift, we often think of something uh, that brings us comfort or joy, something we really enjoy. That makes sense up to a point. But what the New Testament means by a gift is, yes, something that is helpful for you that you can enjoy, but it means something that is for your ultimate good. It doesn't mean it always leads to your ultimate comfort. It certainly doesn't lead to your comfort in this life. So even those negative things, through the hand of a loving God and his allowance to ha have it happen in your life, is for your good because it leads to you becoming more like Christ if you will respond to it correctly. And Paul says, this is a good thing, so rejoice in it. The Christian can take heart, as Jesus said in John 16, 33, in the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. We can take heart because even the negative circumstances of life, all the obstacles we might face, are directed our way through the hand of an infinite, personal, loving Heavenly Father. Paul tells us to live in such a way that we proclaim the gospel through our actions, that we express our ultimate heavenly citizenship through our conduct. Is that how you live as a Christian? Have you considered that on a day-by-day -day basis when you get up in the morning? How can I live out the implications of the gospel and what Jesus has done in my life? How can I live that out with the first words I utter to my spouse? as we get out of bed? How can I live that out as I speak to my children, my family members? How can I live that out as I go on the commute to work? Are you being who you are in Christ? This is the unique opportunity that we have as Christians to convince the world of the gospel and its truth and its power to change through means of our conduct, our living it out, to show them that we're not merely religious practitioners or nice philosophers or philanthropists in the community, although we might do all that stuff, but to show them the power of God through the example of a changed life. 
Has the gospel made radical inroads into your home, O Christian? Into your work, into your relationship, into your style of communication? Have, have you been abused or taken advantage of in the past? Well, if that's the case, first of all, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that, but understand if you're a Christian now, then you are not first and foremost a victim. That's not who you fundamentally are. That's not to say th those abuses and those sufferings shouldn't be dealt with, perhaps even through a legal means if necessary. But what it is to say is you do not need to be defined by that abuse or by that suffering or by that past challenge. Because as a Christian, you are now defined by who you are in Christ. You are a son or daughter of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So live in light of that reality. If you're a Christian, it's not your ethnic background, your economic means, your sexual desires or orientation, nor is it your current challenging situation that defines who you are. You are defined and ought to define yourself in actual, practical, objective terms as who you are in Christ as a Christian. Are you letting the gospel inform how you live your life, how you act, what you wear, what you put on your body and what you put in your body, how you use your sexuality and with whom you use your sexuality, how you use your money, how you speak to other individuals, to your friends, family, coworkers, spouse, and children. Your actions and conduct reflect what you truly believe and your true identity. So live like who you are, Paul says, by the power of God's spirit. Inform your actions and your conduct with the gospel. And that takes perseverance. It takes a Christian tenacity consistently to think of yourself as a citizen of a new place and to live in light of that as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. To not be intimidated by others, to join hands with other Christians to defend and live out the gospel. Let's pray. Father, grant, we pray, not just a mental understanding of what Paul says in this passage, but a true life and heart application. Paul is not naive enough to tell us that this is easy, but it is a habit that can be formed in the life of a true Christian. To constantly be asking the question, with this challenging situation in front of me, with the decision I need to make, with what I'm about to say or do, how does the gospel inform that? How can I live out the truth of the gospel and who I am in Christ with what I'm about to do, say, or think in every area of life? We pray that we would live out the lordship of Jesus Christ in this way, that we would consider ourselves as citizens of heaven, that we would realize we need to defend the truth of the gospel and defend it together in Christian unity and not be intimidated by others who are against us or by spiritual forces or by suffering or challenges. But rather we can see even all of those things as a gift from you that you can use for our good and your glory. And I also want to ask in particular for those perhaps visiting with us or hearing this who are attracted to Christ and to Christianity that they would understand the difference between going to Christ and receiving the new life that only he can offer and that they would do that 
as opposed to the false model, which is trying to act like a Christian in hopes that that will make them a Christian, for it never will. Until you have fundamentally changed us from the inside out, forgiven our sins and made us new, we can never live like Christ. So I pray that they will receive that new birth, that new starting point, and then that they will be able to live that out through the power that you give them. May they be attracted to Christ through the example of changed lives from this church body as they live out who they are in Christ. We pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.